You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Seth, can you can you sneeze on command? No, you actually, can't. no. Well, I, I, to be honest, I haven't a lot of experience in trying. Okay, I wonder if we could try to get you to sneeze. I have some pepper here. I'm just going to pour it out. We'll just see if this works. Have well, you, what do I do uh, with it? I think you just sniff it. Yeah, S- smells Nothing? like pepper. Plan B is you you pluck out a nose hair with the tweezers. Let's go with Plan A. <laughs> there might be another way. Why don't I give it a try? Sometimes I can get myself to sneeze if I pinch my nose. Huh. Okay, I did it. That's pretty good. Thank you. Now, how far do you think that sneeze traveled, the molecules in my sneeze? Well, uh, I would say, given the density of air here at standard atmosphere and pressure, I'd say 15 feet, no more. And I don't have a cold or anything, but we know that there are a lot of microbes in whatever it was that was discharged. Well, that's why I put on this mask. Yeah, we know that. Well, you're fast. I didn't even see you do that. Okay. And so someone else comes along, you could catch a cold, right? Well, yeah, sure. Right. So when you sneeze, all the microbes and everything that comes out of you when you sneeze, it's a kind of it's kind of space travel that they're participating in. Well, <laughs> maybe from their point of view. For them, it's really a long distance compared to their size. So maybe they do view it as space travel, uh, except they don't come back. They're going from point A, though, to point B. Yeah. have to see the microbes that might give you a runny nose or some other flu-like malady. We know these guys are small and powerful, but not all microbes are bad. Well, that's right. We need some to digest food, turn milk into yogurt, cause bread to rise. So the one thing that all microbes have in common is... There are lots of them, lots and lots everywhere. Even though there are 12 million of us involved in this handshake, not all of you is going to make it. Quit pushing. Their total tonnage, I mean, that's surely greater than all the plants and animals you see with your eyes. And microbes are going to be here long after humans have vanished from the planet. I think you mean the the kind of big picture vanishing, right? Well, right. The the grand finale of our species, if you will, which I hope is a long, long time from now. Okay. So the point is, is that microbes are pretty hardy. But before humans disappear from this planet, they may just go to Mars and, and at least they'll continue to send spacecraft to the red planet and maybe to other planets and moons. And you know what? Tiny viruses, bacteria, what have you, are going to hitch a ride. Do they have tiny thumbs to do that? Uh, Yes, but you don't have to pick them up, except you will. So could the Viking spacecraft, you know, back in the 1970s, have been the equivalent of a gigantic planetary sneeze all over Mars? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, To Earth and Back. And the To Earth part? 
well, that refers to the little critters, these alien microbes that might fall in this direction, you know, clinging to rocks or to spacecraft that returned from Mars. I mean, who knows? We were worried about microbes coming home from the moon with the Apollo astronauts, and that's why the crews had to be quarantined. Do you remember that when they were quarantined? Of course I do, but they didn't do it forever. They, they stopped after the first couple of crews. Well, so it sounds like infection can be a two-way street. Yep, and to protect all the planets, we need uh, some sort of crossing guard. Hey, you in the Ford Focus, stop already. Okay, kitties, now cross. Or is it a bouncer who's not afraid to keep places free of riffraff? You're looking very dressy, doll, like the updo. Rouge is a bit much, but I just don't see a name on the list here. Toodles. No, what the Earth needs is someone who's both. Uh, a crossing bouncer guard. A cross and grounce a bossing ouncer art of souser crossing bouncer. My name is Cassie Conley, and I am the NASA Planetary Protection Officer. Yeah, no, that's not quite right. Uh, maybe a guarding, ossering ouncer, barding, cross gouncer. Cassie, planetary ouncer. protection officer sounds like a title from a superhero film or some sort of science fiction film, but this is a bona fide NASA position. Your job is to protect the planet? My job is actually to protect all the planets in the solar system <laughs> and any other planets we look for going, if we actually go to them somewhere else. Oh, okay, that's all. So it's just all the planets. All in of the, the, all of the planets, system. all of the planets, all of the time. I can give you the bumper sticker later. Um, <laughs> Yet the position of planetary protection officer was started when NASA first started sending missions into space, when we first started launching a spacecraft. And the concern was, from even before then, that if we want to study life in the universe, we have to be really careful because there's life everywhere on Earth. And if we mess up, if we allow Earth life to get to the places we want to study, then we're going to have so much background that we may not see the very faint signal of the life that could be present in another location. And when you talk about life being everywhere on Earth, we know this from our study of extremophiles, that life will fill in every nook and cranny that Earth conditions will throw at it. And in fact, we know that now much better than we did in the past. So when we were sending the Viking missions to Mars, which was in the middle of the 70s, they thought that most of the life, the microbial life they would find, would be the life that we see in our kitchens or in our bathrooms or on our hands, the life that's comfortable living in the places that we live. When Vikings were launched, they didn't know about life at the bottom of the hydrothermal vents in the ocean. They didn't know about life at Yellowstone. But they still understood that they had to take precautions. Well, in the case of Viking, what they did was they baked, I think, in an oven. Or I don't know if that's the term that you use at NASA, but they, they baked these spacecraft before they sent them out there. I don't know what the, what the temperature yep. was, but it wasn't actually hot enough, or it's not the temperature you would use today. That is absolutely correct. They baked them in an oven at about 111, 112 degrees Celsius, above boiling of water. But we now know that there are organisms that were collected from Yellowstone that can survive 120 or 121 degrees centigrade. Is there any chance that Viking could have contaminated Mars then? Viking had yeah. a small number of organisms buried inside the spacecraft. The temperatures they used probably killed off all the organisms that would have been on the surfaces of Viking. Let's continue with this scenario with, with Viking because we can use it as an example of the sort of thing that you need to look out for. So, so Viking goes to Mars and it lands. And under what conditions might a microbe from Earth actually contaminate Mars? Mars is a different planet. It has a completely different environment. It would have to get off the spaceship, and it would have to reproduce and adapt very quickly to this new environment. It would have to adapt to the new environment, but it wouldn't necessarily have to adapt quickly because it's cold on Mars. 
So one of the Viking spacecraft landed close to the equator. And based on what we understand after the Vikings were launched, it's quite dry close to the equator. The other Viking spacecraft actually landed sort of in the mid-latitudes, around between 30 and 40 degrees north, I think. And both of the Vikings had arms that were digging into the ground. And it's possible that the northern Viking, the one that landed in the mid-latitudes, if it had dug only a little bit further, it might have struck ice. And at that point, if organisms had fallen off the spacecraft near that ice, then the wind would cover it over again. And they're protected from UV. They're close to ice. It's cold now. But we know that organisms in the Antarctic can survive frozen for most of the year. And only a few times do they ever warm up. And when they warm up, they grow. When they're frozen, they just sit there and wait. But wouldn't one of the conditions that would have to be fulfilled in this is that that microbe, not only would it have to survive heat and cold, it would have to survive the UV rays that will hit the spacecraft as it heads towards the red planet. Well, the, the way that we land spacecraft on Mars is that we actually have to package them up in a heat shield and back shell. So the lander spacecraft is shaded from the sunlight on the way there because it has to get through the atmosphere. And it gets rather warm when it's trying, like kind of like a meteorite when it goes through the atmosphere. So it's protected to, from that extent. But it's a good question. It does have to survive the UV. Well, well, Cassie, Mars is a long way away. What do we care whether or not a few Earth microbes land on the red planet and, and build a new home there? Well, are you interested in studying life in the universe? In order to study life in the universe, we have to make sure that we're not going to interfere with our own experiments by getting Earth life into those experiments. So it sounds like we don't want to contaminate our own laboratory. If we consider the solar system our laboratory for studying life in the universe... And then it raises a question of, let's say we did, and we took a sample from Mars and we brought it back, use the example of Viking, we could be returning our own Earth organisms back to Earth, thinking they were Martian organisms. Is that a possibility? And also, um, would we be able to identify them as such? Well, there's a couple of ways to answer your question, and I'd like to get them in order. So... For a sample return mission from Mars, we have very strict requirements on how clean that, that mission would have to be and how, how, much, how carefully they would have to protect the samples from contamination from the spacecraft or from Earth after it gets back, specifically because we have really sensitive instruments to detect Earth life. So that's a very high priority for any kind of life detection mission, but even more so if you're bringing samples back to Earth because we can use the best instruments we have. It's likely, depending on whether we could get the organisms to grow, that we might be able to say, yes, that looks like an Earth organism, or no, that doesn't look like an Earth organism, which would be much more cool. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot by pointing out what seems to have been a potential security breach, but I understand that the Mars Science Laboratory, which is on its way to the Red Planet now, its drill bits may have been contaminated. Yes. So, What happened? <laughs> somebody forgot their requirements is what happened. So... Yeah, it is true that the Mars Science Laboratory mission was recategorized from a planetary protection category 4C, which means it's allowed to go and touch ice, to a planetary protection category 4A, which means it's not allowed to go and touch ice. And the reason this happened was because the mission had developed over time, and early on they were intending to touch ice, and so that meant their drill bits had to be clean at the same level the Viking was. Then as the mission progressed, they sort of refined their landing site choice and realized that they were probably only going to be landing near the equator. But they didn't talk to me about what they were going to do to the drill bits. Do they have to run it by you? It is absolutely, it, complying with planetary protection requirements is a requirement to launch the mission. 
So yes, they have to have approval of their planetary protection implementation by my office before they launch. But why not be safe rather than sorry? Why not just boil these drill bits at 3,000 degrees or whatever you would boil a drill bit at, build an oven and stick them in, and really sterilize them for any possible condition that they might meet? Uh, If you ask the engineers that question, they would just completely freak out because it would probably kill their spacecraft. So there's a fine line between doing what Viking did and baking the whole spacecraft. That's actually a much preferred implementation from my perspective because I don't want to contaminate Mars. But it's really hard on the engineering. They did a lot of testing for the Viking spacecraft. They had relatively simple electronics. MSL spacecraft was using much more complex electronics. They were using a lot of plastics that might have melted. So the MSL spacecraft for the categorization they finally met, that 4A categorization, was the cleanest spacecraft that we have sent to Mars since Viking. There were fewer spores on the surface of all of the MSL spacecraft than there all are on your hand. And MSL is the Mars Science Laboratory. Is, is your job to get rid of every possible spore by you telling the story? I'm thinking you, you actually can't. You can't. My job is to make sure that we meet the requirements that are agreed on by the international community so that the risk of contaminating Mars with life is acceptable based on what we want to do. The easiest way to, con- to protect Mars from life is don't go there. But we want to study Mars, so we have to figure out a balance between some amount of contamination and doing our science. And that's a discussion that we keep having over time. So when we eventually want to send humans to Mars, obviously you can't bake a human and have them work afterwards, um, we're going to have to relax the requirements to an appropriate extent, but still consider protecting the science. And that's the policy side of planetary protection. It's a very sometimes challenging discussion to have with different groups of people. And of course, it's not just Mars that we're focused on or that is under your jurisdiction, if that's the right word, when we're talking about the solar system. Um, There are a number of other planets, but there are also moons. You are officially the planetary protection officer. Do you also look over the moons, our moon, Enceladus, Titan, some of the other great moons that are out there? Yes, planetary protection officer in the Greek sense of the word planetary. So all of the moving objects in the solar system. Um, And in fact, most of those objects, we have no constraints on what the mission does. A mission going to an asteroid, a mission going to uh, the Earth's moon, can do anything they want there. They just have to tell the space agency that launched the mission and the international community what they're doing and where they left their hardware. Do you not have to sterilize equipment to go to the moon? You absolutely do not have to sterilize equipment to go to the moon. We sent humans to the moon, and humans have bugs all over them. They're, you know, we, we... left um, little doggy bags or package bags that were not packed out the way they were packed in when the astronauts left. Would life not grow on the moon? Would uh, bacteria from Earth be able to make a home on the moon? The moon is covered in vacuum. That is, the moon doesn't have an atmosphere. It has a very thin exosphere. And that means that any water, any alcohol, any oxygen, that any volatile compounds that can evaporate, anything that can evaporate on the moon would be gone. And Earth life needs water. You know, it might need to be only a small amount of water, but if the water is gone, if there's parts per billion of water in an organism, that organism is dead. Don't they think there's there's some water under the surface of the moon, or at least ice? At parts per billion. That's not much. That's not much. Cassie Conley is NASA's planetary protection officer. Her job is a two-way street. I mean, her team protects other planets from contamination from us, as we heard. But what about protecting us from them? Later in the show, how to keep sample returns and other alien riffraff 
from maybe taking over the Earth. But before that, the case for life on Mars, to Earth and back, on Big Picture Science. So we heard the case for protecting Mars and other planets from unintended earthly contamination. But what about Martian contamination on Mars, otherwise known as Martian life? The planet is dusty, dry, and bitterly cold right now. It's not super habitable. But was it always? Well, imagine billions of years ago... 4.2 billion, that is. And we could climb into a spaceship... Bat in the hatch! Is on Earth to travel to Mars. All right, you'll have to suspend your disbelief on this because not only did we not have spaceships 4.2 billion years ago or freeze-dried food or astronaut training programs, Earth had no life, period. Wait, there's no freeze-dried food on this mission? Not even corn and chocolate pudding? Which is a real space dinner, I might add. You can buy it online. Earth was lifeless, bombarded mercilessly by rocks and festooned with fiery volcanoes. But Mars, 4.2 billion years ago? Well, if we could have traveled there... Onward! We would see... We would see a place that looked remarkably familiar. It would look like what we see on Earth. I see skies of blue. We would see a thick, bluish sky. Clouds We'd see clouds. We might even catch a little bit of rain. We'd see rivers, we'd see lakes. We'd see a remarkably Earth-like place. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Until. Ah, Green Acres is the place for. <laughs> Until we got out of our spacesuits and tried to breathe the air. The air would be thick and it would have high pressure and it would feel comfortable but it would be carbon dioxide. It would not have the oxygen we've all learned to love. And I do love oxygen, <laughs> even though there was little or none of it on Earth 4.2 billion years ago. <laughs> I could really go for some right now on Mars. <laughs> I think to myself, what a wonderful Mars would have looked remarkably Earth-like, minus the kind of atmosphere that supports our gusto-grabbing lifestyle. So, back to the present day. The big question for NASA planetary scientist Chris McKay is, what about... What's that? Way too cold for a trip to the ocean today. I'm at the sink in the men's bathroom. Uh, what about water, Chris? Would Mars have had an ocean billions of years ago? There's almost certainly oceans. Mars had enough water that if it was on the planet today, it would flood the northern plains. So there could be oceans, there would certainly be rivers, and there could well have been things like rain and clouds and all the things we associate with a water cycle here on Earth. You know, one thing you haven't mentioned, life. Any life? Well, that is the big question. If we look at Earth, we see two things, two important facts about life on Earth. One, it starts very early in the history of Earth, and two, it requires liquid water. We go to Mars, very early, it had liquid water. Could there have been life? That's the question that I think the Mars program ought to be focusing on. Yeah. Well, that sort of implies that maybe it's not. Is it not? Well, I guess it is, but I think we could do more of it. I'd like to do more direct searches for life. 
Okay, so uh, you look around, you see essentially just hills, mountains, rivers, oceans, no green canopy around anything. Right. Uh, what about in the oceans? Is there a better chance of finding something interesting there? Well, if we look at Earth, uh, we would be optimistic that there would be life in the ocean. Our standard model for life on Earth is that it started in the ocean and spread in the ocean, and then only fairly recently on planetary scales conquered the land. So maybe the ocean would be the place to go. Personally, I would stick to the shore, where you've got the ocean and you've got the interface with the land. Walk the shore of early Mars, see what you find, send me a report. <laughs> now, uh, Chris, if we were to send you to Mars next week, you know, just on a bet, the picture would be a lot different. Maybe you yeah. could describe what it would be like today to land on Mars. Today, it would be like a desert. There's no water. Uh, it's cold. It's dry. Very, very dry. It's dry like nowhere we can even imagine on Earth. We go to the driest place on Earth, and still it's wet compared to Mars. And everything tells us that we're too late, that the water was there long ago. Uh, maybe billions of years, maybe only millions of years, but it definitely is not there now. So it's a, it's a planet where what we're really doing is archaeology. This is planetary-scale archaeology. We're digging into Mars's past. If there was life and if it was interesting, it was in the past. What about the atmosphere? The atmosphere is also gone. We have only thin traces left. The atmosphere on Mars is 100 times thinner than Earth's. The early atmosphere was certainly much thicker, probably as thick as Earth's, maybe more. What we have left is just a remnant of it. Mars is a planet that's seen better days. <laughs> it's gone. Its salad days are over, maybe right. literally and figuratively. What's the best thought as to what went wrong with, uh, with Mars? Well, our current thinking is the problem with Mars is it's too small. It is almost one-tenth the mass of the Earth. And as a result of being too small, it has no plate tectonics, which recycles its atmosphere. It has less gravity, which means it's harder to hold an atmosphere. And it has no magnetic field to protect it from the solar wind. All those factors tend to cause it to lose its atmosphere. And in a in a sentence, we think that's what happened to Mars. It lost its atmosphere. Okay. There wasn't uh, any third party involved? I've heard theories suggesting that, uh, you know, there was a kind of a fender bender with another object in the solar system that might have stripped the atmosphere away. Yeah, impacts could also remove the atmosphere, but impacts could remove some, but not all of it. And so there should still be some left around, enough to, to keep Mars warm, even with the impacts. And impacts would have also hit the Earth. Uh, Mars is not different from the Earth in terms of the impacts. Mars is different from Earth in terms of its size. Now, it's true that the lower gravity would mean that the effects of impacts would be exacerbated. But I put that in the lower gravity column rather than impacts per se. All the inner planets experience an impact flux. The question then is, how is Mars and Earth different? And there are big differences in size, and size matters. So being the runt of the litter meant that things were going to go poorly for you. If, if Mars had been the same size as Venus and the Earth, what, what would it look like? That it, would it you know, would be a flourishing planet today? That's right. If Mars was the size of Venus and Earth, we might be having this radio show on Mars and beaming the signal to Earth. Mars would be still a warm, wet planet if it was 10 times as mass, if it was the size of the Earth. And there may be solar systems out there where, indeed, there is another Earth-like planet a little bit farther from an Earth-size, Earth-distance place. I've heard you speak occasionally on the subject of terraforming. In other words, let's fix Mars. Let's bring maybe it not, back. Yeah, maybe not next year, but sometime, and uh, make it habitable so we could walk around in something less bulky than a NASA spacesuit. Right. Well, it's... 
If we look at Mars's early history, uh, we see evidence that it had a thick atmosphere. So we could ask the question, could we restore it? Restoration ecology is what I call it. And indeed, we could. The fundamental problem with making Mars habitable again is warming it up. Well, warming up planets is a technology that we have mastered, and in fact, we are applying it on Earth, where it is probably not a good idea, but if we were to do the same thing on Mars, put in the atmosphere super greenhouse gases, indeed, it would warm back up, and any CO2 frozen in the polar caps, water frozen in the ground would all come back out, and for a while, we would have a Mars that was suitable for life. Now, for a while is short compared to the age of the planets. It might only be 100 or 500 million years. But that's a long time in terms of human scale. So I think it would be an interesting project to consider. So not rule it out. I mean, just throw old refrigerators at Mars. Well, there may be a more elegant way to produce the greenhouse gases, but the idea is correct. Make greenhouse gases on Mars the way we're making them on Earth. We can't really carry them to Mars. We've got to make them there. Chris McKay, thank you very much for talking with me. You bet. My pleasure. Chris McKay is a planetary scientist at NASA Ames Research Center. In my view, there's no doubt whatever that there was once life on Mars, if only because we know it could have got there from Earth. There was once life on Mars? That's quite a claim. And you are... Paul Davies, director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science at Arizona State University. Oh, okay, the Beyond Center, where you ask big questions in science and philosophy. But does that include whether Martian life could have originated on Earth? We know Mars was warm and wet, not too different from Earth. And we know that both Mars and Earth get hit by comets and asteroids with enough force to splatter rocks all around the solar system. Wait, wait, how do you know that rocks from Mars can fall to Earth? I know that because my university has three of them. Oh, the point is that conversely, Earth rocks could travel to Mars. And cocooned inside the rocks, there could be some hardy microorganisms able to survive the journey. So is planetary intermingling possible? Well, the answer is yes. And with that, Paul, you've summed up what people are really after. I think that's not really what people are after. What they want to know is, uh, has life arisen twice, once on Earth and once on Mars? And if there was a separate type of life on Mars, might it still be there today lurking somewhere, perhaps deep beneath the ground? Well, what's the consensus of the scientific community about the proof of life on Mars? I mean, you've outlined here a reasonable conjecture that there's no way Mars could have avoided catching our cold, if you will, or or the reverse, that we would have infected one another, but that isn't to say the infection would have taken on Mars. Right. It's one thing to get, for example, Earth-like to Mars. It's quite another thing whether it liked it when it got there. I think it's really very likely that life on Earth began on Mars and came to Earth later on, and that's because Mars was a better place for life to get started. The conditions were a little bit more favorable. But the real issue, I think, is could we go to Mars today and find traces of past life or maybe still existing life, what to look for? And I think everybody agrees that the surface of Mars is really pretty horrible. It's a freeze-dried desert. It's bathed in deadly ultraviolet radiation. The soil is highly oxidizing. It ain't the kind of place to raise a kid. And so if uh, we expect to find existing life on Mars, for my money, I think we should drill down beneath the surface. You may have to go down quite a long way because the one thing that we're all agreed on is life, at least as we know it, must have liquid water. The surface of Mars doesn't really have any in substantial amounts for substantial times. But deep under the ground, there could be reservoirs with subsurface organisms 
still there, still clinging to life, not dissimilar to the organisms that exist deep beneath the surface of the Earth today. Well, if it were simply a matter of drilling deep below the uh, dry surface of Arizona, this wouldn't be a hard thing to do. But are there really any plans to send, I don't know, robotic spacecraft, I presume they'd be robotic, to Mars and, and drill down a couple of hundred feet or a couple of hundred meters? Well, plans, perhaps overstating it, it's certainly been discussed. There have been people at NASA, for example, who've uh, kicked these sorts of ideas around. The problem is it's very expensive. Also, it's not clear that it could be done with any foreseeable technology without actually sending humans there. So we're then into the whole human mission thing. The only way that we could probably do it with existing technology is politically incorrect. That is, we could send a nuclear bomb and blast a crater, hopefully deep enough to release fluid from a subsurface aquifer, and then we could send a Viking-type spacecraft to sample the contents of that, uh, uh, that material. But I don't think that's going to fly anytime soon. And so the best that I think we can do uh, with existing or foreseeable funding and technology is something like a Mars sample return mission, where we send a spacecraft there, it grabs a sample of promising-looking rocks, brings them back to Earth for analysis, and we're not going to find anything living, in my view, in those rocks, but we could just find traces of past life if, for example, these rocks have been flung out from a deep subsurface location by some sort of impact or something like that. Paul, we have looked for life on Mars uh, over and over, and there were claims in the past, like 100 years ago, of course, uh, that life had been found on Mars. In fact, intelligent life, uh, intelligent enough to dig canals. And, of course, there was the 1996 Martian meteorite, uh, which was claimed also to contain dead microbes within it, not to mention the Viking lander experiments of the mid-1970s. There's still controversy about that. What's your take on all these pieces of offered evidence for Martians? In my view, the best evidence is from the Viking lander. Uh, Gil Levin, who designed the labeled release experiment, is convinced to this day that he found life on Mars. And it's true, his experiment was positive at both of the landing sites. And when the sample was heated to kill any putative microbes, he got a null result. So on the face of it, this is exactly what Martian microbiology should do. Unfortunately, it's impossible to rule out there's some exotic soil chemistry. We know that the soils of Mars are going to be highly oxidizing. They're going to fizz if you pour some sort of nutrient broth on them, and fizz they did. It was impossible for that experiment to discriminate between chemistry and biology. Uh, we could do that. We could repeat the Viking mission, and we could discriminate between chemistry and biology in a very simple way. All life on Earth uses left-handed amino acids and right-handed sugars, but you can make a broth uh, with the opposite handedness. Now, we don't know which way around Mars life might be, but it wouldn't matter because if you just did the whole of the Viking experiment again, that is, pour a nutrient broth on some Mars soil, if it fizzed with uh, left-handed broth but not right or vice versa, then that's a signature of biology. If it fizzes with both, that's a signature of chemistry. I'd like Gill to do that experiment. I'm a strong supporter of that, of, of NASA going back to Mars with an improved version of the labeled release experiment that went on Viking that has that left-right discrimination. I hope one day it is done. Finally, Paul, is Mars still the best place to look for life? And it's likely to be microscopic, of course. We'll probably need a microscope to see it. But still in all, there are other places in the solar system, some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, which might also have life. If you could run only one experiment, 
would it be to go to Mars? Uh, yes, I still think Mars offers the best promise for finding life beyond Earth within the solar system. And it also has the virtue that it's relatively cheap to get there compared to the other bodies in the outer solar system. Paul Davies, thanks so much for talking with me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Paul Davies is director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science at Arizona State University. So this is intriguing, this idea that Viking may have found evidence of life and its mission 40 years ago, what Paul mentioned. Well, that's been the claim of Gil Levin, who was on the Viking biology team. But the rest of the team doesn't agree, and uh, scientists still don't agree with him on that. It's, it's controversial, and it's one of those questions that will eventually be settled when we send more sophisticated landers to Mars. Another thing that Paul mentioned was this idea of left-handedness and right-handedness when talking about amino acids. What is that? Well, it's called chirality, which is just a fancy Greek word, but all it means is that the some of the molecules used for life come in either left-handed and right-handed versions. It's just the way the atoms are arranged on the molecule. And it turns out that, you know, you take one of these molecules, and for all forms of life on Earth, all of them are left-handed, whereas in nature, they're both kinds. So it's just a good test for whether there's life somewhere. You look at the molecules and see if they all have, you know, the thumbs on one side rather than the other. Okay, but they're not really thumbs. They're not really thumbs. <laughs> okay. Now, there was the question also of whether or not we'll be digging into the red planet one day, but isn't that the goal of the Mars Science Laboratory, Curiosity, to do some digging into the Martian soil? I don't think it's going to dig deep enough to reach those wet areas where you might have microbes today. What it's looking for, of course, are molecular building blocks of biology. So this is NASA's step-by-step -step process to try and find out if the red planet is a dead planet. So the bottom line, life on Mars, stay tuned. Exactly. Hey, here's one. If meteorites are the rocks that hit the planet, what do you call those that miss? Uh, meteor wrongs? Right. Okay, that concludes our meteorite jokes for today. I got that from a 12-year-old, by the way. Yeah, but is that true for all the jokes you get? That's not fair to 12-year-olds. Well, uh, I'm sorry. I, I, any 12-year-olds that may have been offended by my remarks, please accept my apologies. All right. <laughs> but the meteorite jokes might be over, but not the impacts of these zippy little rocks themselves. Coming up, could life in a meteor survive an impact on Earth, wherein it would be a meteorite at that point? And how to protect the Earth if it did survive. To Earth and back on Big Picture Science. We're back with To Earth and Back from Big Picture Science. Paul Davies said that Mars rocks come to Earth, but that's not all that falls to Earth. Where I come from, there's a terrible drought. We saw pictures of your planets on television. We saw the water. In fact, our word for your planet means planet of water. David Bowie was the extraterrestrial who took the tumble in 1976, and countless spaceships have made such celluloid crash landings since then. Nearly as spectacular, and without a doubt scientifically interesting, are the meteors that are large enough to plow through the atmosphere and hit the ground, becoming meteorites. Now, these are collector's items to amateurs, of course, but to astronomers, meteorites are samples of material from the earliest days of the solar system, stuff they can take to their lab and study. 
but gathering these rocks from space is pretty darn tedious. So bring in the volunteers, such as Debbie Collier of the SETI Institute, who recently responded to an all-hands-on-deck alert when a large meteor exploded over Northern California. We went up into Gold Country to Sutter's Mill Park in Lotus, and it was very exciting. Now, this was in response to a sighting of a meteorite that had exploded over this part of the state, and that's what led you up to the gold country. That's right. There was a meteorite that fell, I believe it was April 22nd, and it was both sighted by people who live in the area and also tracked by astronomers and meteorite trackers. Did you see it yourself fall? No, I did not see it fall. (laughs) Now, you're a geologist. Well, in my past life... And you were up there hunting for a meteorite in gold country. It is a kind of gold. But what is a meteorite actually made out of? There are several different classes of meteorites. And the meteorite that recently fell is a carbonaceous chondrite. And so what's exciting about it is that it carries organic material. And that's why it's very much of interest to people who studied the origin of life. That is gold. That is gold, exactly. Now, how do you go about finding a meteorite? It, it falls in Northern California, and you just take off in your car, and, and then what happens? Well, Peter Yaniskins of the SETI Institute had an idea of where pieces of the meteorite may have fallen. Right, because it breaks up in the atmosphere. That's right. It breaks up, but they're able to track the breakup and estimate where it might have landed. And so he had some ideas of where to go, and He had also been contacted by people who had sighted the meteorite coming in and falling and then started looking in those immediate areas where those people saw and felt the meteorite fall. Now, did it fall in a farmer's field, on public land, on top of buildings? Exactly. All of that? (laughs) All of that and more. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Pieces of the meteorite could have been found just about anywhere, and they probably will be out there for many years to come because it broke up into so many small pieces. Now, were you given any tips on how to look for a meteorite? Now, it's one thing if it lands on a white piece of paper. Um, It's another thing if this dark object lands in, in a field or on a road or something. Oh, yes. It took about three hours to get up there. And during those three hours, we had a set of tutorials on what to look for and how to find a meteorite, what they're made out of, their importance, and a lot of other information. (laughs) And so we knew what we were looking for, although it can be mistaken with a lot of other things. But we were looking for small, very dark, black rocks that had a sheen on them which would be the crust from when the meteorite broke through our atmosphere. Would it still be smoking? (laughs) Not when we went. (laughs) So it's work. It's hard work. It is hard work, and it's very hard to find them. You have to be really careful. We didn't want to touch them because the organic material in the meteorites is of interest, and so by touching them we would contaminate the meteorites. So we would try to look at it and study it without touching it. And if we thought there was any chance that it would be a meteorite, we had whistles and we would blow the whistles or go find one of the experts. So it really is a needle in a haystack. It's a a meteorite in a farmer's field. Exactly. And did you find one? Well, there was a fellow that I ended up buddying up with um, as we were walking down the side of the road. And he and I would kind of uh, ask each other how we felt about these black pebbles that we saw. (laughs) And we'd call them pocket rocks because we'd take them and 
wrap them up in foil and put them in our pockets because we weren't really sure whether or not they were meteorites. So you could have been picking up pieces of gravel. Exactly. <laughs> and when do you find out whether or not what you and your, and your buddy, right. your meteorite buddy, found is indeed a meteorite? When do you find out? We will find out after it's been analyzed. We don't know exactly when that will be, but hopefully soon. Okay, and this would be the first meteorite that you have found? Yes, me personally. You personally, okay. Uh, Debbie, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Debbie Collier works at the SETI Institute. The carbonaceous meteorites that Debbie mentioned are of interest for their possible role in spawning life to scientists such as Aaron Burton of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. He searches for these fallen stones too, but he doesn't look for them in places with lovely weather like California. Aaron Burton goes to the bottom of the world. Every year, there's a joint recovery group that's sponsored by NASA, uh, the National Science Foundation, and the Smithsonian, and they send expeditions out to Antarctica. Uh, and so Antarctica is a nice place to go look for meteorites because you have the white background of the ice and the snow, and then you're looking for kind of black rocks against that background. So that's where we get most of our meteorites from. Oh, okay, well then it's not that the meteors make a deliberate decision when they're headed for Earth to land in Antarctica because they figure, you know, we'll do less damage if we land there. It's, <laughs> it's just that they're easier to find there. Uh, that's correct. I guess around 100 million kilograms of uh, meteorite or extraterrestrial material comes to the Earth each day. Okay, well, that's a lot of tons of meteorites, but, but, but how big are most of those meteors that are, that are hitting the Earth? I, I assume they're not the size of, you know, the parking lot outside the building here. Uh, fortunately for uh, life on Earth, these things basically explode from shock impacts as they come through the atmosphere. So typically less than 1% or even smaller actually survives the transit or the travel through the atmosphere. When they find these meteorites, these rocks sitting on the, on the ice and the snow, uh, do they analyze them there in Antarctica, or do they pack them up and ship them somewhere? I believe that they give them a sort of a quick examination, and they can usually classify the general type of meteorite that it is from a quick visual inspection. And then they're brought back and curated at the Johnson Space Center. And so there they actually do a, a more rigorous analysis to determine the mineralogy and uh, other identifying characteristics of the meteorites. Maybe you could explain to me what kinds of meteorites are there. What are the big classes? So there uh, are at least 45 different recognized kinds. The ones that we are most interested in for our research are called carbonaceous chondrites. So these are stony meteorites with relatively low metal contents that are said to be carbon-rich. There, there are other meteorites, I assume, that are just you know, kind of solid metal, iron, nickel, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think those actually are the most beautiful because they, uh, they actually stay largely intact, too. Uh, I know the Smithsonian has some very large iron meteorites that are on the order of, you know, like 1,000 kilograms. Yes, I've seen them at the, the Rose Center in New York or the old Hayden Planetarium there. It has some things that are, you know, if they, they landed on your house, they, they would just go right through your house. I mean, <laughs> these are big things. Yes. Okay, but those aren't the kind you're looking at. You're interested in these things that have carbon in them. And, and why is that? What's, what's your thing with carbon? Well, in our research, we try to figure out how the molecules uh, necessary for life on Earth were able to be formed. So if you wanted to go back in time and study prebiotic chemistry on Earth, that would be really nice. But we can't do that from Earth-based samples or things that you find on Earth because all of the prebiotic chemistry that happened on Earth has been erased by biotic chemistry or life. But meteorites trap what happened uh, you know, four and a half billion years ago during the early formation of our solar system, uh, and then they bring it to us later, sort of like a time capsule. Primarily, we study amino acids, which are the molecules that make up proteins in uh, modern life. 
And uh, do you find any? Uh, yes. So actually, a, a lot of different amino acids have been found in these meteorites. Uh, most of the ones that we use in biology have been found. So there's about 20 to 25 that are regularly used by uh, life on Earth. And then up to uh, 100 or more have been identified in meteorites. Amino acids. Now, those are those are building blocks of proteins, which are, of course, uh, building blocks of, of biology. So is the suggestion here, or the thought at least, that maybe the Earth was seeded by meteors a long time ago with these building blocks and were the result of that? I, I would agree with that statement. <laughs> the meteorites give us a very good idea of what kind of chemistry took place out in the solar system, and we know that they've been uh, bombarding the Earth basically since the Earth's formation. So you can't prove that you know a meteorite four and a half billion years ago fell that had these compounds in it, but it's a pretty safe conclusion. Well, all right, Aaron, but you know, amino acids might be necessary for life, but are they sufficient? I mean, if I took a, you know, kind of some sterile planet somewhere that had liquid oceans in an atmosphere, and I just threw a whole bunch of amino acids down into it, could I, could I be assured of producing life? I mean, do I, do I need anything else? You probably would need something else. Uh, that's kind of a big sort of area of, of debate within the origins of life community, because amino acids, you typically think of proteins or enzymes, and these are the things that speed up chemical reactions and they produce energy for life. But then we have the other class or classes of molecules in the cell, DNA and RNA, that contain the information. And so it's, there's sort of this, this fight in the community between whether you needed information first in DNA and RNA or whether you needed your, your enzymes or machines first in terms of proteins. So those two uh, different camps sort of battle it out. Well, Aaron Burton, I want to thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Aaron Burton is an astrobiologist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. We've been talking about microbes that might travel from our world to some other world or vice versa. Now we're going to return to Cassie Conley. She was talking about the need to sterilize our spacecraft that are actually going to land on some other world because they might infect that world and then we'd find life on those worlds without realizing it's our own life. But what does NASA do about spacecraft that are coming the other way? I mean, they might hitch a ride on a spacecraft coming back, of course, but then there are nature's spacecraft. I mean, asteroids, comets, whatever, that fall onto the Earth and that might contain life or at least life's building blocks. Is she responsible for protecting us against that, too? That is not my job, because that was somebody else throwing the rocks at us. It, we didn't do this on purpose. And of course, you can't regulate things that humans aren't doing. So if it's normally falling to Earth, as you know, the Stardust mission or the Genesis mission, where they were going out and they were collecting samples of material, but that material is constantly falling to Earth, we're not going to contain those samples because if there was anything nasty, we're already, we already know how to deal with it. And I should say the Stardust mission was a mission to collect material from a comet. Yes, the Stardust mission flew through the tail of a comet and collected particles and then brought them back to Earth. So that's interesting. Because humans are not throwing meteorites at Earth, it, it's not something that you're worried about. But, but could something survive a trip on a meteorite and then when, as it goes bouncing through a farmer's field somewhere take root. As a matter of fact, I am one of the very small number of people on this planet who has accidentally demonstrated that. I had an experiment on the space shuttle Columbia, and I had experimental animals. We were trying to understand how to get them to grow in inside the space station or inside the shuttle. What kind of animals? These were nematode worms, C. elegans. Their genome had just been sequenced, and we were trying to use them to understand muscle atrophy. And of course, as everyone knows, the last flight of the shuttle Columbia ended very tragically. 
it was an explosion because the space shuttle disintegrated during the reentry, and that reentry is very similar to a meteorite-style reentry event. As it turned out, the hardware that my experimental animals were contained in actually disassembled from the spacecraft during the disaster and landed in fields in Texas. Several months later, we were able to recover that hardware, open it up, and we found live worms inside. And that's we, a complex organism. An animal is a co very complex organism. So we have demonstrated that Earth organisms can survive a re meteoritic-style reentry event. Cassie, that makes me wonder, it seems like so much of your job falls on careful planning and thought. Yes. And implementation. But are, are you ever called out on an emergency basis? I hope that that will never happen. The only way that I could envision that possibly happening would be if we had a sample, a return sample that was in containment, and then somehow there was a breach of containment. It used to be during the Apollo program that the planetary quarantine officer, that's what they called them at the time, had the right to make a citizen's arrest in order to protect the Earth from potential contamination. Give me an example of how you'd make a citizen's arrest. Oh, well, you'd walk up to somebody and say, I'm arresting you in the name of the United States. I'm not sure how. Because you have contaminated? Because there's a danger of extraterrestrial materials contaminating the Earth. My predecessor got rid of this because it probably wasn't constitutional. But during the Apollo program, we have some lessons learned in that at that time, the lunar samples were protected with an overpressure because they didn't want the Earth contamination to get on the lunar rocks. Well, that means that if one of the gloves popped of the people who are handling them, that that atmosphere will get into the glove and onto the person's skin. That happened. And several of the people, the technicians who were handling the rocks, decided they didn't want to have to go into quarantine for two weeks, so they left the building before the security guards get there, which is a good set of lessons learned. We've had many lessons learned about planetary protection from the Apollo program as to how we might want to do it differently the next time when we actually have restricted samples coming back that we have to keep in containment as well as protect from Earth life. Cassie Conley, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Cassie Conley is NASA's Planetary Protection Officer. So some interesting ideas in how we spread microbes all over the universe. Well, at least within the solar system, got to say. And in fact, there's been a long, <laughs> long-standing hypothesis uh, by some British theoreticians that some of the major diseases on Earth are actually caused by uh, alien microbes falling into our atmosphere. It's very contentious, but they've been uh, saying this for a while. So the idea is we might be getting diseases from microbes that came from another planet. Hard to protect yourself against all the microbes that would be falling onto our atmosphere, yes. Well, it's an interesting theme, at least for science fiction, but who knows? I mean, we've heard that there are some very basic questions about how microbes might or might not travel throughout the solar system. I'm just trying to picture going to my doctor and say, look, I'm sick, and I think it was caused by alien microbes. He might not have the right antibiotics. Yeah, any idea where you picked up this cold? <laughs> yes, I think it was on Mars. <laughs> Or it came from bars. <laughs> well, thanks to our production staff who are out of this world, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Tanya Lewis. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to To Earth and Back. And you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program at Big Picture Science, and leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because you think it's less likely to infect something, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. Well, that's it for the program. I guess we can breathe free now.
<coughs> no, seriously, I could really use some oxygen. 